0: God's word to us this morning. Remember this from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written in Psalm 112 verse 9, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, prime real estate, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Thanks be to God.
1: So, Eric, I don't know if anybody has ever encouraged you to pursue acting, <laughs> but it's something you should consider. <laughs> Uh, Welcome everybody. It's so great to see you today. It really is. And um, if you've been with us, you know that for the last 11 weeks or so, um, we've been in this sermon series called Who Am I? And in that series, we've been uh, trying to discern, you know, our identity, our true identity in Christ, not just for us individually, but also as a church. Who is it that God has called us to be? And uh, today, what I want to look at is the idea of being entrusted, that we are entrusted by God. It's actually a message on stewardship, stewardship. And um, I want to define stewardship uh, before we get into this. Um, A steward is someone who has been entrusted with the resources of another, okay, A steward stands in stark contrast to the consumer or the user. The basis of stewardship is recognizing that everything that we have, everything that we have has been given to us by God. It belongs to God, and it is not ours. It is simply ours to steward on behalf of others. That's what stewardship is. Now, most people don't like it, When we talk about money. Most people don't like it when we talk about money in church particularly. And I get that. It's kind of uncomfortable. You know, it kind of makes us sort of squirm and wish that we would have tuned in to Andy Stanley instead. Or something, right? But Jesus talked about it a lot. Jesus talked about stewardship and he talked about money a lot. Did you know that 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught are about money? 16 of the 38. Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. There are more than 2,000 verses on money and only 500 verses on prayer. The prayer team's over there saying, Say what? Jesus talked a lot about money, but why? Why do you suppose he spent so much time and energy focusing on the topic of money? Well, I want to do something with you. I want you to reach into your pocket right now and pull out your wallet. Pull out your wallet. Or if you're a woman and you have a purse, reach into your purse, pull out your pocketbook, and hold it up. Hold it up. Whatever speaks to your money, hold it up. You can caress it if you want to, because what you're holding in your hand is the temple of the 21st century. This is where the god Mammon lives. This is where the god Mammon lives. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. You see, we have been targeted by messages that tell us we ought to worship what is in this We ought to worship what is in this. And we've been told and we've been taught that our security, that our well-being, that our importance, it all depends on how much money we have in this wallet. It all depends on that. So when it comes to living out our identity in Christ, we have this tension. We have this tension because our culture tells us That we are to acquire as much as we possibly can. Hang on to as much as you possibly can. Put away as much as you possibly can. But Jesus says that we're to be radically generous. Not only does he say that we're supposed to be radically generous, he says that we are to be sacrificial in our giving. And to top it off, he wants us to be cheerful about it. He wants us to be cheerful about it, and that requires a relinquishing of control. It requires trust. So as an act of trust, I'd like you to take the wallet that you have in your hand, and I'd like like you to give it to the person next to you. Give it to the person next to you right now. If it's your wife, (laughs) skip a person. Give Give it away. Everybody do it? Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to take an offering. (laughs) Okay, and, uh, you know, uh, typically when we take an offering, what we do is we look inside our wallet real quickly and we say, how much can I afford to give? Um, After the service, I've got that lunch thing. Uh, The beginning of the month, I still have to pay rent. I can afford to give this much, but today, I want you to be lavishly generous. I I, I want you to to give like you've never given before. I'm just kidding. You You can give the wallet back to your neighbor. For some of you, that exercise alone caused somewhat of an anxiety attack. Well, several years ago, several years ago, I, I, I listened to a message on stewardship by John Ortberg, and it was an amazing message, and a lot of the ideas that I have in my message today have been stolen directly from that message. So thank you, John. But one of the things that he talked about in that message was an experience that he learned from his grandmother, and when I heard the story, I couldn't believe it because The story that he told about how his grandmother... Oh, I still have Eric's wallet. Oh, thank you. Uh, Joel. Oh, there goes the money. The story that he told was so similar to the experience that I had with my grandmother that I wondered if maybe all grandmothers uh, have been commissioned to teach this particular principle on stewardship. When I was nine years old my parents decided to move back to the hometown where my grandparents lived. My parents, our grandparents were in their mid-80s at the time, and you know their health was starting to decline, and my parents felt like the best thing for us to do would be to be in close proximity so that we could help out as much as possible. And just about every other day, whenever I had the chance, I would ride my bike over to my grandmother's house because I loved being with my grandmother. She doted on me like no one else. In her eyes, I could do no wrong. And every time I got to Grandma's house, she would break out the cookies and the two-tone fudge, and she would feed me these things, and she would let me drink as much Pepsi as I wanted. I mean, I would just be bloated with Pepsi and treats. And I loved it. And then we would play games. We would play games like croquet, Chinese checkers, And uh, Monopoly, Monopoly. You ever played Monopoly? Monopoly is an awesome game. Well, here's what would happen. Grandma was incredibly loving in every way, doting, just like I said. But when it came to when it came to games, she was ruthless. (laughs) She was ruthless. She was in it to win. And she would beat me at everything. I mean, over and over again, she would beat me. And when we played Monopoly, uh, she would divide up the money like you do at the beginning of the game, and I would try to hold on to as much of the money as I possibly could. It's a lot of money that you get at the beginning of the game, remember? So I've got all this money, and I'm trying to hold on to it. But Grandma knew how to play the game. She knew how to play the game. She knew that acquisition was the key to survival. And so with every turn she would spend her money on property, on houses, on hotels whenever she could. And when it was my turn, I would just, you know, skip over those opportunities because I wanted to hold on to the money. And before you knew it, every turn I would be paying rent to my grandmother and before long she had forced me out of the game. I lost the game. And then grandma would say to me, oh, Jamie, because that was my nickname when I was a kid, oh, Jamie, don't worry. In time, you will learn how to play the game. I hated it when she said that. I hated it because I wanted to win. I wanted to win. And so I started playing Monopoly with my brother and my sisters whenever I had a chance. And I learned how to play the game. I learned how to play the game. I learned that money is how you keep score. Money is how you keep score. And that winning requires a ruthless, a ruthless commitment to acquiring. And that's what I did. And once I figured that out, I couldn't wait to play Monopoly with my grandma. I couldn't wait. So I got on my bike and I rode over to my grandmother's house. And after I ate the fudge and the cookies and drank some more Pepsi, I said, Grandma, would you like to play Monopoly? And she said, oh, sure, Jamie, let's do that. And slowly and meticulously, I drove her off the board. (laughs) I relentlessly exposed the soft underbelly of her weakness. I exposed it. I exploited it. And the game does strange things to you. I remember it happened at St. James Place. I looked at my grandma, the grandma that I love, the grandma that loved me, and I took her for all she was worth. (laughs) I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched as I took the last dollar that she had, and she gave up in utter defeat. It was the best day of my life. (laughs) But grandma had one last lesson for me. She smiled. She took it gracefully. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, remember, Jamie, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. <laughs> all the money, all the property, all the houses, the hotels, boardwalk, park place, it all goes back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to memorialize that game so that it would last forever But that's not how life works. That's not how life works. You see, we get all hyped up about the game. We get hyped up about the things that come into our lives. Our money. The stuff that we've accumulated. And we think that that stuff gives us significance. That it will bring us joy. That it will give us a sense of security. But we forget That the game is going to end. The game is going to end. Each day that passes is one day closer to the day we're going to die. And you can't take it with you. You just can't take it with you. How many people do you know, think about it, have sacrificed everything for money? They sacrificed everything. Their marriages... Their relationship with their kids, even their personal health, all sacrificed for the sake of getting rich. One more dollar. How many people do you know who have said, I want to make a million dollars before I'm 30? That that is some sort of life goal, an aspiration that is supposed to be looked upon as something good. I heard a story about a rich man who was on his deathbed. He's on his deathbed, and he called in three of his friends, his pastor, a doctor, and a lawyer. He called all three of them in, and he gave each of them an envelope that was filled with a million dollars in cash, a million dollars for each of them. And what he asked them to do was to take that envelope at his funeral and throw it into his grave with the casket before it gets covered up. Because he wanted to prove that, yes, indeed, you can take it with you. Well, the rich man died, and the three friends showed up at the funeral. And they brought their envelopes, and each of them threw them into the grave just as instructed, and then after the funeral, the three friends went out for coffee. And as they were sitting there drinking coffee, the pastor spoke up and he said, fellas, I, I need to confess. I need to confess that I, I took $200,000 out of the envelope that I was given because the church needed a new roof. And, and I-, I really wanted to fix that roof. And so I took 200000 out and we fixed the roof. The doctor said, "Well, while we're confessing, you know, I took 500,000 out of my envelope because I wanted to add a, a, a wing onto the hospital. And I felt like that was important." The lawyer said, "Gentlemen, I'm really surprised at you. I threw in a check for the full amount." now we may laugh about that story but what if it were you what if it were you what if you were given a million dollars by a rich friend of yours and they asked you to throw it away what would you do would you consider some of the things that you could do with that money would you throw it in Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'd throw it in, but then I'd show up at the graveyard later that night with a shovel. (laughs) You see, none of us are immune to the power of money. None of us. But we need to remember that God has entrusted us with the resources that we've been given for a reason. There's a reason why we have the things that we have. And you know that he has given the church, the church universal, enough to eradicate poverty and starvation amongst a a number of other ills in the world. But instead, we choose to spend the money on ourselves. It's true. We might say, well, hold on, James. You know, I'm not rich. I'm not spending lavishly on things that I don't need. But let me just tell you that wealth is relative, It's relative. You see, the reason why we don't think we're rich is because we compare ourselves with people that have more than we do. But what if we compared ourselves with the villagers that we serve in Rwanda? Or what if we compared ourselves to the squatters in Manila? How wealthy are we compared to them? Did you know that half of the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day? Did you know that about 925 million people are malnourished? And according to UNICEF, roughly 21,000 people die every day because of poverty. 21,000. One child dies of starvation every 15 seconds. One. One. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 10. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Another child just died. And chances are their parents were standing over, helpless because they didn't have the resources to intervene. Are we rich? Compared to the majority of the world, we are. And Jesus warns us not to set our hearts on money. In fact, he promises that if we would give it away cheerfully, he would bless us. That's what he promises. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work you see God doesn't want us to become dependent on the gifts that we've been given he wants us to become dependent on the giver of the gifts and there's a huge difference and God knows that when we hold on to more than we need it won't take long before we forget about him instead of depending on God we depend on our stash We think it will protect us or deliver us, but only God can do that. Only God can do that. Recently, I was talking with Earl Earl Carr about his story, about stewardship and what God taught him during his life and how his habits have changed over the years because of some of the things I'm talking about today. And and I just thought, you know, rather than share Earl's story, why don't I just have Earl Come up and tell us a little bit about what he's experienced. So Earl, why don't you come up?
2: Thank you, James. Um, So I had the privilege of coming to Trinity. Um, My mother, Emily Carr, brought me here when I was about three years old. And I loved coming to Trinity. I I would literally run (coughs) through every single corner of the church. Truth be told, even broke a window on the roof one day. And, you know, one of the great things about um, growing up on Roosevelt Island was my, me, my mother, and my little sister, um, we slept in a, in, in a one-bedroom apartment. <clears throat> and I remember as a child growing up, my dad had left when I was young, that I actually was ashamed to bring friends over the house because we, ha- we lived in this one-bedroom apartment. I, I literally would go out of my way not to bring friends over the house. So as a young child growing up, we, we understood, you know, the, the wants and needs, the difference between wants and needs very clearly. Um, but a few years ago, God showed me the importance of stewardship in a very important way. Um, I have a half-sister that has been growing up in Jamaica. Um, she never knew her mother. Um, and at the age when she was applying to, to college in the United States, God put on my heart that I needed to help her. Um, and so we went through this period of, um, you know, helping her, you know, go through, you know, applying for college. And as the moment that she gets accepted into college here in the United States, um, I lose my job at HSBC Bank. And, you know, for, I've, I've had this calling. I knew that God wanted me to help her. But, you know, I had lost my job. And, you know, my wife turns to me. She says, what do you think we should do? And God spoke to me clearly. He said, Earl, I've I've entrusted you to help your sister. And through um, prayer, through a number of family members and, and, and um, other mentors, we were able to help her come to the United States, study, for her first year was tough, um, you know, we, we helped her financially, but her sophomore year, her junior year, her senior year, she got, she got a full scholarship based on merit. She graduated from Howard University some cum laude, and she's now working in Washington, D.C., as a grant specialist. Now, I know if you had asked me when I had lost my job how things were going to turn out, I had no idea how we were going to help her, how she was going to come to the United States. But God said, Earl, I'm going to use you, and I want you to listen and obey me. Um, I've heard this quote that, um, don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me how you spend your money and I'll and I'll show me how you spend your money and I'll tell you what your priorities are. Um, if you had a pie chart and it showed every single dollar that you spent in every category, what would that look like? And if you were to look in the mirror and say, God, am I using the resources that you've given me to be the best steward? How would you respond to that? Um, I read this recent quote by C.S. Lewis, and I wanted to share it with you. Everything you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. Church, we are called to give all of our talents, resources to God in good stewardship. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much, Earl. Thank you. Now, for those of you that don't know Earl, um, Earl is one of the most generous guys I know. He's generous with his time. He's generous with his talent. He's generous with his resources, his treasure. And just about every other week or so, Earl brings someone up to me here during the service and introduces me to someone that he's invited to Trinity. Because he's investing his time and his talent and his energy into things that are eternal. And I've actually heard people say that we could really use 10 of Earl Carr. (laughs) What if we could use 300? What if we all emulated Earl in some of those ways that are... Focused on the eternal. As we think about what it means to be entrusted, I, I wanted to wrap this message up with just a few helpful reminders. And this is just a recap. First, everything that we've been given belongs to God. Everything. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, we are just stewards of time. Talent and treasure. That's what God has laid before us. That's what he has entrusted us with. Second, God frequently uses money to test our faith. You may not realize that, but he does. Read any biography of any successful missionary and you will discover that there was a time that they ran out of resources. And they had to learn to trust God to provide for them. And the greatest work that they accomplished happened after they worked through that season, after the resources had run out. Third, we need to trust God. We need to trust God. If we are not giving generously or sacrificially, what that means is that we don't really believe that God will bless us more than our money can bless us. We don't really believe it. And fourth... We need to invest in the eternal. The eternal. God wants us to store up treasures in heaven. In Matthew 6.20 it says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jim Elliott Jim Elliot once said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep for what he cannot lose. You see, folks, you have been chosen, adopted, reconciled, loved, and you have been entrusted by God, which means he sees something in you. He sees the potential in you. He knows that you are capable of making a tremendous difference or he wouldn't have given you all those things in the first place. So I'd like to end this message with a very tangible challenge. Next week is the final week of our fiscal year here at Trinity. And if you look in the bulletin, you'll notice that we are about 150,000, give or take, short. And we've been short most of the year. And the trustees and the elders have been spending a lot of time speculating on what we should do if we end the year again in the red. But I want to suggest to you that our shortfall is not a financial matter. It's a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual matter. And I would like for us as a church to go into this next fiscal year having made our budget. Not because the church needs the money. Trinity will be fine without the money. But I want to make budget because that will send a message that we are a church that trusts God more than we trust our money. That we are a church that uses our resources, the resources that have been entrusted to us for the benefit of others instead of spending it on ourselves. That we are a church that knows that when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. Will you pray with me?